How's it going, everyone? Today, I have the honor of talking to um, Michael Bailey Smith, who might not be a name you kind of hear about. For me, I'm a huge movie buff, and one of the first movies I guess I saw, uh, this is back in 2000, I was going through um, an old VHS store, and I came across In Hell with Jean-Claude Van Damme, because I was in this crazy kind of, I need to watch every Van Damme, every Seagal not necessarily based on those actors, but the villains. And your character in that movie really resonated with me. And uh, a couple weeks ago, I went back and rewatched that movie, and that character, Valia, still holds up as this menacing, brute kind of person. And so I was like, I wonder what this guy, who is, who is Michael Bailey Smith the person? And I learned about your incredible military background, um, U.S. Army, 82nd Airborne, and growing up in parts of your life in Iran, working with a satellite company in Iran, and then you've got it to become part of this kind of pop culture kind of icon from everything from Charmed to other TV shows to playing Super yeah. Freddy. And it's just it's just awesome you're here today, Michael. Mm. I hope you uh, I hope this finds you well. Thank you. I appreciate that and thanks for having me. It's uh yeah, you got a cool show and I'm glad to be on it. Thank you. Now I do want to touch on, obviously, 2020 was kind of a wash, um, obviously, based on what you had for a job. And I know a lot of your entertainment side of the house was affected by it, as was mine. Um, but what were you able to kind of find, or what were the positives you were able to pull out of 2020 that you're able to carry into the new year? I think one of those things is you say, <laughs> one thing you appreciate what you had, right? And so, you know, when that moment comes when we can start traveling and start be able to hang out with people without having masks. I think it's really just in general with everyone, we're gonna really appreciate things and appreciate people more. I think we took things way too much for granted, uh, just to ease of the way we traveled. I mean, my current job that I have, you know, I travel probably around 200,000, 200, 240,000 miles a year around the world. From, from China to India to South America, all through the United States, uh, Africa. And so uh, it'll be good to get back on the road again. I, those things I'm, I'm very appreciative of. Now, have you gone back to a, a TV show set or a movie set recently with the COVID protocols in place? Or is that something you're kind of like, hey, we just got to do this to move on in that part of your life? I have not. I have not. But I, I you know, uh, a producer that I'm working with now uh, has done a ton of, uh, TV shows, and he's on uh, Queen of the South right now, and so they right. definitely go through all the different uh, protocols for that. So it's it's quite interesting, but you know the thing is they've been pretty safe, and so long as people adhere to it, uh, you can get the work done. So, which I love, and I've kind of got used to the as I'm in the security field, where one of the things I did when I, this whole thing happened, I became a COVID compliance officer. So working with producers and production managers and stuff for different events. It's, it's just very, very fascinating that people, I think the first six months, people were really torn apart that their industry is affected by it. But to see people kind of band together and adapt to what's coming, it's just awesome. And it's cool that sports are able to come back and now movie sets are getting back together. It's just kind of cool because for me, I don't really take, I take the politics and the drama out of entertainment. I just love movies and television. Yep. And I think it's a good release for people, especially when it's done right. And you've obviously been a part of that. So growing up, you have a military Air Force family. That brings you to Iran, which I don't know. I've been to Iran a bunch of times with government stuff or work, but I, I, I don't know a lot of people that have actually lived in Iran. And I think you're the first person I've actually talked to that has. Really, really interesting. Yeah, so... Yeah, I grew up as an uh, Air Force brat. My dad put in 30 years in the Air Force. Uh, he has a very cool and interesting uh, background. Uh, he was a part of SR-71s, the Blackbirds, back in the day before they even came out. So he did a lot of interesting work at uh, Area 51, Groom Lake, and things like that, things that wow. he, he could talk a little bit about you know, now to a certain extent. But at the time, when when uh, when that plane flew in before he was actually released, you know, and uh, it was covered in black. I mean, it was just in, in the darkness, this plane would land in Nellis Air Force Base. And uh, so he was he was a pretty cool dude. Um, yeah, and so we traveled around the United States and uh, never really had a hometown. 
And then my uh, my junior going end of my sophomore year, we got he got stationed in uh, Iran, in in Tehran, and his job was to build an OJT program on the John on the job training program for the Iranian Air Force, and so we packed up and uh, we drove to uh, you know we we lived in you know as an Air Force brat you live in these small towns really no big thing and so. Our first time in New York City, we got lost, you know, trying to find JFK Airport, and yeah. we, put our, we put our we put our uh, our station wagon with a bunch of our stuff in it, not all of it, but some of our stuff on a plane on a boat to go to uh, Iran, and then we then we were on a plane and we flew from uh, JFK to I think it was uh, Rome, Rome to Ankara, Turkey, Turkey to Baghdad, Baghdad to uh, uh, to uh, Iran. Uh, and so it was, it was quite interesting getting off the plane. I distinctly remember a different smell than United States. We brought some, I brought a, we had a dog and a cat that we brought and that dog definitely knew the difference for sure. It would walk outside and go and then run back inside. It was just crazy. But, you know, I was, uh, what was I 15? So, you know, I'm, I'm in my prime, you know, as a teenager, you know, I want to, meet girls and there was none of that going on, you know, at the time. And we lived in a little bit of a villa uh, in, in a place called, uh, the road is called Chelopanj Metre. Uh, I still can speak a little Farsi. Uh, we had, went to a Toronto American school there. Uh, an interesting thing about all that, I spent th- uh, three years there um, and I graduated there in the Toronto American, no, at the U.S. Embassy. That's where we had our graduation. And after we got done, uh, I didn't know what to do. Uh, I wanted to always play college football, and I didn't know how I was going to do that. And being the oldest of six kids and, you know, being on a, you know, my dad, you know, was making, you know, E6 or uh, E7 salary. There's there's no chance you're going to be, you know, they'll be fording me to go to college, right? So I had to figure out my own way. And so I got a job. Uh, I worked nine months with a company called uh, – uh, uh, Westinghouse, sorry, Westinghouse. And so it's been a while since I talked about this. Uh, Westinghouse, and we built uh, defense radars for the Orion Air Force. So we actually, every day uh, after I graduated the whole summer and most of, and all the way up through uh, the next spring, uh, I I worked, oh, into the wintertime, I worked at uh, Westinghouse and we would drive about a two hour drive up into the Azores Mountains and, and, uh, on top of the mountain was this in radar installation. So I built uh, the radomes, uh, installed uh, the, the radar installation. I was a laborer is what I was. So just a grunt and did all this stuff and made seventeen fifty an hour. And back in 1970, that's, awesome. that's a lot of money. So I packed that away, all of it, right? And it's tax-free too. So that just all went straight to my bank account. Um, and so, yeah. And, but I, I want to always play college football and I, and even saving, like, I think I saved like $15,000 or something like that in the short period of time I was there. Uh, there's all these other stories I could tell you about how being trapped up in the mountains. We got snowed in. We had to walk down. A guy had a heart attack. I'd love to hear that story. That's yeah. very, uh, that sounds pretty amazing. Yeah. So, I mean, worked with these Westinghouse uh, engineers. They were, they were pretty awesome. And, you know, I'm just a kid. But they hired a bunch of guys straight out of high school. And, and uh and uh, and so there was one time we were going up the mountain. It was snowing, and uh, we're like, "This is going to get bad." And then we were inside. I was laying cable and doing all that, running cable all through the insulation and doing crawling under these ducks and things like that, and pulling cable and stuff. And about lunchtime, we look outside, and it's about maybe two or three feet of snow already. I'm like, "We're going to have a tough time getting down." By the time it was the end of work, we couldn't get down. We were stuck, and so. Uh, they said, okay, just, you know, you guys got to spend the night. We had some extra food there. And so this one, it went from one night to two, uh, an extra day, an extra day after that. We were up there for over a week and we ran out of food. We found a, uh, a shepherd's hut uh, and got rice and, and, and uh, it was like a whole like shack thing up in the mountain somewhere that we saw. And we went back there, found like a big thing of rice, grabbed that and water and, and ate uh, boiled the wa- snow into water and did eight, uh, eight rice and water. 
Uh, we found some little flavoring imported in there, and that's what we did. Uh, they tried to get a rescue team to come up, but they got stuck and I blocked the road, so no one could get up. So uh, we were running out of food. We had nothing to do, so, I mean, we had to do something. So we decided to wrap ourselves in like, plastic wrap inside our clothes because we didn't, weren't dressed for this blizzard. Right. And and our shoes, and then me and another guy, we basically um, – we basically uh, were at the lead. So we had these long poles and shoving them through the, the, uh, the snow. Cause the road up was on a cliff, on a cliff side. So if you took a wrong, you're, you know, you're dropping, you know, 500 feet down a ravine and you didn't know where the edge was at. So we helped, we're all tethered together and going down. Well, on the way down, one of the engineers who was kind of overweight and kind of out of shape had a heart attack. So he fell dead. And one of the other guy jumped on him, revived him, brought it back to life. And then we went all the way the rest of the way down, down the, the hill and made it. And down there was pretty funny. I'll never forget this. We get down there and there's rescue team down there and all this. So like, it's like from the movies, you know, and what, what, what's the first thing they give me? They give me a pint of vodka and some bread. So I haven't eaten like in two days. I'm like, so on the way home, I was having a great time. All the guys were having a great time. We were freaking wasted. And so it, you know, it's funny. I get back to my house. My mom and dad go, where were you? I was gone for it up in the mountains. For freaking, no one, you know, back in the day, you didn't have cell phones, nothing like that. Right. So it's the 1970s. So that was, that was pretty cool. Now, but, but sir. with your dad in the air force, you ultimately chose to do the army. Was there just, a, was there a reason why you picked army as opposed to doing like the family thing and doing air force? Yeah. So, um, this is this is a crazy story too. I just my whole life's like crazy stories. Uh, I'm I'm surprised I'm still here. Um, so, you know, I wanted to I wanted to uh, I wanted to play college football. Well, that's my goal. I've always wanted to do that. Um, and I'm six four. At the time, I weighed about 165 pounds. I was I could take my hand and reach around. That, that, that seems really skinny. It is very skinny. It is. I mean, you could see my heartbeat through my ribs. That's how skinny I was. It was it was pretty bad. And, and so, uh, I, t- I asked my dad, I, I said, he goes, well, you know what, you know, the, the military has a GI bill. Why don't you think about joining the military? And then you can get that and then go to college. And if you want to go play football, I said, that's a good idea. So, um, you know, there's no internet, nothing like that. So he just threw me on a plane. That was a Mac flight, right? These military have these yeah. Mac flights where you jump on a Mac flight. So I might. Mac, 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 uh, a Mac flight from Tehran, Iran to Frankfurt, Germany. So I went to the recruiter there. So someone picked me up and, but to get there, I remember getting there. My dad gave me three $100 bills and put it in my wallet. And I remember I had to find a place to stay and they just sent me there. Yeah. Nowadays you would never do that. I mean, I could never send my kids to like this here, just go to Frankfurt, Germany and figure it out yourself. And so they said, there's a recruiter. So I put me on a plane. I went up to Frankfurt um, and I, I I got a taxi or I got something. I remember being in, in Frankfurt and I couldn't find a place to stay. And then someone told me Bonhoeff, uh, like Bonhoeff, it was like train station, but to go to this one Bonhoeff mission and you can spend the night there. And so that's what I did. I went to this place. I got a room. I paid the guy some money. And so I put the three $100 bills in my sock in my shoe and I slept on a cot with like 20 other or 30 other people in this room, other guys. Right. And I woke up in the morning and those, that money was gone. Jeez. And I was like, are you freaking kidding me? So I lost it. You know, I'm this crazy, right. You know, skinny white dude going crazy in this Bonhoeff mission. And I said, if you don't find this, you know, find this money, whatever like this. So lo and behold, about 20 minutes later, Oh, I have your money. We found it. We found it. So someone found it. So that was kind of interesting. But I met I met my first like kind of cool German young gal lady. You know, she was kind of cool. She showed me around. I, you know, I was kind of infatuated with her. And then I got to the recruiter recruiter station, and um, I chose the army. I wanted to be a ranger. Is what I wanted to be. Um, but I, I when I told them, they said, "Yeah, you're not going to make it." Not at 6'4", 160 pounds, you're not going to make it. So uh, they said, but you could be a paratrooper. And I said, all right. I said, uh, in the 82nd Airborne, I said, all right, cool, sign me up. My goal was to do that, then go to, you know, be a ranger, right? Work my way up, you know. And so then I signed up for Lava and Bravo, the whole situation, you know, ready to do gung-ho, the whole situation. So I get back to Iran. 
my dad goes, what MOS did you sign up for? I said, 11 Bravo. He goes, hell no. And so he called him and he, he called him and says, you get him out of that MOS and pick my, get my son another MOS. And so I became a 24 Mike, which was, uh, it was a Vulcan electronics repairman. And so I, you know, I went in the military. Uh, so after I finished my time in Iran, um, I left by myself. I went, went back and, and I was on deferred uh, entry yep. and uh, went in. My basic training was at Fort Bliss, Texas. Uh, and uh, went there, went through 24, I went to basic training and then 24 Mike school. So that was, I became a Vulcan repairman. So if you graduate top of, top of your class, or at least 10%, you get to go to an advanced course called the FAR, it's called the Fort Aerial Alert Radar. Okay. And so went in that, and that was a, like a, it was a self-paced course. It was supposed to last like three months. I did it in 17 days. Wow. So, and I got promoted out of it. I went from E1 to E2 or E2 to E3, I forgot it was. And, and then I got assigned. So I finished so fast, I went to the 82nd without going to jump school. And you talk about getting the world of hurt coming my way. A maroon beret with no jump wings, no flash, no nothing. And uh, I, I saw, hold it. So I have my, I have my maroon beret still. So, yeah, so I got this. So this is, I was in the third of the fourth ADA air defense artillery. And, uh, why I, so I headed up, um, so yeah, so I went to, and then I went to jump school, um, while I was in and, uh, yeah, did that and got out. And I mean, then I did three years. And so, but my goal was to, to get out and to play. I mean, my goal was to get out and play college football. And, but I excelled really well in, in the military and, I always pride myself that anything I do, I want to make sure I finish strong and, and try to do the best I can and be at the top, you know, and never, you know, there's a lot of guys that join the military, just do enough to get by, you know, and like my older son is like that. My older son just finished four years as an army ranger in the 75th ranger regiment. So, um, and you know, he's, he was in first battalion. Uh, he did excellent. And I told him, I said, this is what's going to happen. So most people, you see a lot of people in the military are going to get in there and just do enough to get by and whatever. I said, don't be like that. You're going to get opportunities. This is in life as well, where opportunities can present itself. And there are either two types of people. One, they're going to sit back and watch someone else step up and make it happen or, 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 or them take it, or you step up and you make it happen. And that's what happened. He, when he went into, was in basic in Fort Jackson, uh, he, the drill sergeants, you know, how they, they'll put you in, in charge of a platoon. And next thing you know, you're fired you know, 30 minutes later. He was put in charge. He stepped up, took over, and was the whole, the leader the whole way through. And he never was fired. Nothing. He got he graduated top of his class in that. He, he was a Ford Observer 13 Fox, so he's top of his class in that. He went to uh, RASP, and he was one of the top guys in that class. And then he went to went to Ranger School as well, and he did that. So top of his class, he went straight through. So no recycle, no nothing. So he he killed it. Um, but for me. Um, I wanted to, you know, get out and play college football, and that's that's what I did. And the interesting thing is, so when I was in, this is in so 1979, the uh, Delta just started, uh, and Colonel Beckwith was going around, uh, you know, basically, you know, quote tryouts, you know, for for uh, for that. And uh, they asked me if I wanted to do that. And I, I told him no, because I wanted to get out and play. I had, I had no idea. I thought it was something else more that I had to do. And I didn't know it was like this big, you know, you know, Delta was something that's pretty, pretty darn special. So there was a guy in my squad, a squad leader. There was a guy in my squad that was, uh, uh, he, he went through the, the, uh, the program. He got into Delta and uh, he was on the rescue mission that failed, you know, in the desert of Iran. And so when that whole thing went down, I'll never forget we were having formation and a black C-130 AC gunship flies. We were in old division at the end, right, uh, right by Green Ramp in, in Fort Bragg. And an AC-130 flies right over the top of our barracks. Like, oh, man, we're going. And next thing you know, we were down on Green Ramp. I had everything packed up, ready to rock and roll and waiting for the word, you know, sitting on a 141. We never got it. But my, my superintendent of my high school was one of the 50 American hostages. Oh, wow. So it was kind of cool. I was thinking, man, I, there's probably a chance I might go back and get to shoot my neighbor. It'd be kind of cool. <laughs> Just stop teasing. <laughs> yeah, <no. laughs> 
But you know what I mean, though. So right. no, that's it's crazy. And so you actually get to try it with the Cowboys, the Dallas Cowboys. Yeah. So 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 I walked on at Eastern. So I had a chance to go to Notre Dame. I know, believe it or not, uh, um, a chaplain of my unit played at Kansas State, uh, and so he he heard that I wanted to play college football. And so he made some calls for me and called up Notre Dame to say, hey, I got this kid who's really fast, uh, good kid, you know, 6'4 at the time. And then when I went and weighed 160, well, I got out of weight 240. So I lived. Yeah, I, I lived. I was ripped and I was I lived in the gym as much as I could. I remember out like we're, we're like in some country, whatever. And I'm doing pushes behind a freaking, you know, gamma goat back in the day. Now they have Humvees but back in the day it's gamma goats and you know, doing push-ups. They used to call me the muscle head because I was always trying to work out everywhere I could get my foxhole. I'm doing handstand push-ups. I'm doing everything I can, you know? Um, and, and, uh, and so, um, you know, so I had a chance to go to Notre Dame and then he called me and says, you know what, if you go to Notre Dame, you're probably gonna sit on the bench for a while. Where, where are you from? I said, well, I was born in Michigan. And he says, okay, let me look at them. He said, well, Michigan, Michigan state are two biggest schools. How about something like Eastern Michigan? They need help. And I end up going there. They called him. And so I walked on and then I started four years. I went from being a center to a guard to offensive tackle. And then I was preseason All-American, Sporting News All-American, all these things like that. Um, and then I hurt my knee my senior year. Uh, I was supposed to get drafted, didn't, but I went as a free agent to the Dallas Cowboys. And so I was there in camp. Uh, I ran, I was 6'4", 295 pounds. You gained another 40 in the course. Jeez, man. Yeah, and I was ripped. I had about 9% body fat, <laughs> and I ran a 40 and 4.8. So, and even today's standards, that's pretty darn fast. And so for being a big white dude, that's really fast. And so when I showed up and uh, ran that, they're like, what? So they couldn't believe it, you know. Um, and and so I, I was there in camp, and uh, I had a, went a couple, I have a, Interesting, interesting story about Randy White. My one of my first days in camp, I mean, he and I got in a fight, which is kind of interesting. Um, uh, he clubbed me. Yeah. yeah, he clubbed me, and then the next play, I gave him a shot to the neck, and he didn't like that too well. And we were throwing punches, and and then a, a later on that day, I tweaked my knee a little bit, my bad knee, and, uh, and then it just blew up, just blew up like really big, and then. Uh, they looked at it and then, uh, next morning I had a call to go see the head coach and saw Tom Landry was in his office and said, uh, Michael, we love you. We think you could have, you know, been with us for a while, but your knee's not going to make it. And so right. that's what it was. So I, I ended up uh, going back to uh, Eastern Michigan crying, not cry, but I was pretty just devastated, yeah. kind of floated around a little bit and then finally finished my degree in, uh, Computer aided design, like a, it's an offshoot from computer science, and then uh, uh, kind of fell in love with some kind of crazy chick, and we went to California together, and she dumped me up about a month uh, in San Diego, and I befriended this dude who was uh, he was um, he played he would go up to Universal Studios and play Conan the Barbarian, so we trained at Gold's Gym together. Nice. Yeah, so he was a big dude, and he said, hey, I'm going up to Hollywood uh, to go read for this movie called Nightmare on Elm Street Part 5, and uh, why don't you come with me, and maybe you could audition too. And so I went up there and sat in the foyer, and they asked me if I wanted to audition. I said, yeah, and I went in, and I ended up getting a role. Now, you had no ambition to really be an actor, right? No, not not at the beginning, no. And then I got the role of of, – of, uh, playing Super Freddy, a bigger version of Freddy Krueger. Uh, and I spent uh, like three weeks on the show, on the movie. I said, this is what I want to do. And so then I just started, I I uh, found a way to, to get up to Hollywood and lived in some creepy dude's apartment on the floor in the back room. Uh, lived in my car a little bit too. And uh yeah, and I just kind of made my way. I just kind of uh, said, "I'm not, I'm not going to quit. I'm not going to give up." And so, what I've always done, right, either in the military or right. in playing football, and I treat it the same way. And so, I, every every uh, cent that I made, because uh, I got a job working at a test laboratory, putting my degree to work instead of waiting tables, and uh, every cent that I made, I put it towards acting classes, and just uh, started becoming, you know, more proficient as an actor becoming comfortable with auditions and knowing the process and how to create characters and sustain characters. And 
understanding what a character is, you know, in a script and things like that. So after Nightmare on Elm Street, I, I went through a lull of just kind of figuring out what to do. And then um, I got hired to do a, a movie called CIA Codename Alexa wow. with O.J. Simpson. Yeah, uh, uh, O.J. Simpson, Lorenzo Lamas, Lamas, and then a gal named Kathleen Camon. And they just hired me to, to just do the, be a to be a fighter against uh, Lorenzo Lamas. And so, but then they found out that I could, I was an act, you know, that I could. Right, you director. I went from being nothing to being a fourth lead in the film, and you know, single car billing and all situation. So I just kind of built from there, and I did everything I could. I trust me, I did everything I could to get my make my way. I. I would hop in my car in the mornings and and deliver uh, submissions uh, to all the different casting directors throughout the Hollywood. Um, I did everything possible. I did grunt work. I did everything. Everything. I I didn't do too much extra work. I did one extra job on a TV show called First and Ten. Remember that way yep. back in the day? I played a football player. I did some commercial. I did bun- tons of commercials, uh, print work, uh, and so uh, I did everything I could, man, to to make my way. And then it just you know, a couple things that were my favorite. One, a lot of other big guys, you know, started kind of the same time I did in the early nineties. And, and what they would do is they would just not study. They would just think because they're a big guy and kind of a good right, looking guy, they make their way. But me, maybe I had some of those things, but what I had was that I, you know, I knew how to handle myself as an actor. And that, that was, that helped a lot. So I walked in, I crushed it. Every time. So most people would book like maybe one job out of 50 or 60 or 80 or 100 auditions. I booked I booked probably out of 10 auditions. I would book five, which right. is really high in percentage. And I just started working a lot. And that's now, one of the interesting things, though, right now with the explosion of comic books and Marvel and DC. Yep. Yep. There's this incredible lore. And I wish I could have seen it or whatever. But. The Roger Gorman's the Fantastic Four. You play Ben Grimm, the thing, mm-hmm. the big orange rock guy. And yeah, yeah. How is it weird for you to actually be maybe the first one, maybe outside the original Captain America, where this like before you even blew up, people realized the comic books could be a huge property. And like, what? How does that even? What's the? How come that movie? Why is there so much craziness surrounding that movie? Well, okay. I'll show you something else. So here's a here's a uh, we can see this. Okay, yep, I see it. Yeah, so this is a this is a documentary on 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 the Fantastic Four and what happened to it. Um, awesome. And and it's basically unbeknownst to the cast, uh, this movie was made to hold the rights to the film. They because they were gonna because uh, Bernard Eichlinger, who had the rights at the time, uh, producer. He was going to lose the rights in of January first, nineteen ninety four. He was going to lose the rights if he didn't have something in production. So, at the time, I was doing another TV show. I was doing another Lorenzo Lamas film. I was doing um, uh, Renegade, the TV show Renegade with Lorenzo Lamas, and uh, yeah. And so, um, uh, I was going to say is that, uh, um, yeah. So. That, you know, I, I went up like between filming and went up and auditioned for this Fantastic Four thing. And it was very strange because it was like in December, beginning of December. And most of the times in December, we start shutting stuff down because of Christmas, right? right. But this is like auditioning. And they said, okay, now you're gonna, we're going to call you back and in a couple of days. So I, I, I got called back and I read again. And next thing I got it, and they said, okay, we're going to start production on like December 26th or 7th, right? But I'm like, no one ever does that. That was kind of strange. And then so we started production and, and then Bernard Eichlinger supposedly just wanted to start production, but we ended up not only starting production, but finishing the darn thing, at least shooting all principal photography. And then, then all the resources went away. Then Ole Sasson, who's the director, he took, he went and took that, that those cuts and, 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 and doing a clandestine operation kind of did some secret editing and, and added music, got an orchestra and all, and put this thing together in a really grassroots kind of way. And that, and it just turned into a, this film. So, and then, so at me and uh, the guy who played Richards, uh, Alex Hyde White, we got together and we said, let's promote this film. So I spent about maybe $12,000, my own money. Wow. And hired a, um, a uh, publicist 
because someone told me that once you get your first break, you should try to put that all that money back into that opportunity and then hopefully make it grow. Right. And that's and that's kind of what we that's kind of what I did. So I paid for the publicist and we traveled around the country to film comic book uh, conventions and stores and did everything. I remember one time we were flying back from from uh, Florida, I think it was he and I after the convention. And this is back in the day when you had VHS on the airplane. So I had a the trailer of the Fantastic Four on VHS. So I asked the flight attendant, could you play this on the and she did. She played it on the plane. It was awesome. So, um, yeah. So, but then uh, I think it was in December that the that within that year, after a year of promoting it, uh, we got a cease and desist order from Bernard Eichlinger that he just sold the rights to 20th Century Fox. And so that and it just kind of died. But you know what? Looking back at all that and everything that happened. I hate, it's crazy to say, but it was almost a blessing that this happened because right. if, if it been finished, it had been released, it would have came out and it would have been like the other, like the Captain America or some of those other kind of low rent, right. you know, low, lower budget, okay, lower, lower budget films. Um, and so it would have been the same thing, right? Ah, they tried, but no budget. So this one, because it was shelved, everyone to see it, right? And it was probably out of all the Fantastic Four movies out there, and I I've only seen bits and pieces. I've never sat down and watched the other ones. I I feel like it'd be like I was cheating on my wife or my girlfriend. Right, right. Like, this is my baby over here. Yeah, this is my baby. I'm not going to watch anybody else's. So, uh, uh, ours was the most true to the comic books. You know, yeah. There's a lot of effects. I, I know they're talking of obviously bringing the new movie back and, like, yeah, of course. and stuff, but it'd be kind of cool to have maybe even have you involved as like a throw, even a throwback or like almost like a passing the torch. Like you were the first guy to play this character, but also well, be part of a Marvel movie. Agreed. So I played, I was Ben Grimm, right? I played the human form with the hair and I was, yeah, I was handsome back in the day. Uh, and then, but then uh, because of the low budget and they didn't know who I was, what kind of background I had, they hired a stunt guy, Carl Cefalio, who is like Hollywood royalty when it comes to stunts and things like that. And plus, he's been in tons of movies, right. Casino, uh, Far and Away. He's been just everything. He's a phenomenal actor, super nice guy. Um, and so he, they hired him to be the guy in the suit, you know. And so, but I did the voice for him, so I did all the voiceover stuff for him. And so that's kind of, um, so yeah, so. Uh, also, too, uh, they couldn't probably bring me back because I had I had hair back then. I don't have hair now, and right. <laughs> so yeah. Now you're you've mentioned it before, but your size. I mean, you're you're obviously much bigger than the average human, and so I assume it's you get typecast into certain characters, whether you have to play the menacing bad guy yep. or the hulking hero, right? Like you can't really be. We're not talking to like Benjamin Button here, where they can make you smaller and CGI. Oh, I agree. So it's like, how yeah. do you find? Do you find there's a lot of roles out there that you know you could do, but because you are physically imposing, you can't play that character? Agreed, but um, agreed, but it's okay. You're working, and what happens? Work gets work, uh, and you get to do interesting things and interesting characters. Uh, like for instance, here's here's a good a great story. So. My my attitude when I used to audition, uh, when I'd audition is getting the part or not, I'm planting a seed. I'm planting a seed with hopefully the director you're reading in front of, the casting director, and possibly the producers, right? So all those people. You're planting a seed. So you're gonna get it. They might and if you do a great enough job and they like your look, they might find something else for you and you know, and give you the role on something else. Well, I did a I did a pilot for Amazon uh and it was called Cocked. It was about two gun gun manufacturers that are competing to release this kind of new new gun or weapon. Gotcha. And uh, and so I was I was playing the bad guy for this, um, uh, like the the henchman that goes around causing all this uh, all this uh, this trouble. How I got this role was quite interesting. The light on oh my TV just fell off. But anyway, so. Um, uh, how I got this was about two years before that I read for a Burger King commercial and the director for that 
the director for that, I didn't get the role because the Burger King people didn't like my look or whatever, right? right. But he remembered me. And so then I still had to audition, but he specifically wanted me for this role. So I had to audition with the whole situation. So I remember when I showed up at the set, now the the, the production assistant walked, said, hey, uh, Michael, uh, the, the director wants to see you on the set. So I went to the set and it was like in the downtown Los Angeles and it was like the 15th floor of this big building. And <clears throat> went up to the 15th floor and they were shooting up there. And, and then I was waiting for him to finish the shot. And he comes over and goes, hey, Michael, uh, welcome. I said, thank you. I said, do you know why I hired you? And I said, um, well, hopefully, because I was right for the role. And he says, well, that, but I, you read for me about two years ago for a Burger King commercial. And I remembered you. So, so that leads into, you know, planting seeds and always doing that. So whenever I'm auditioning and things like that, I, I always want to make sure I do the, you know, the best job ever. Right. You know, and just make sure that people remember me and that just leads into work and more work. And, 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 and if I do a good job playing a bad guy or playing a tough guy, or whatever this, it'll get more work. Right. And as long as I'm working and as long as I'm providing for my family, that's good. And it allows for a lot of creativity because a lot of times, because of the reputation that I have and things like that, the director, they want you to bring your flavor of this person to make it interesting. I remember one time reading for a movie called, uh, movie was called Monster Man. Classic. Yeah, have you ever seen it? It's freaking awesome. So I played a great character named Fuckface. Um, and it's a great character name. And I, I drive a monster truck, which is freaking awesome. I run over people. And, and I had this kind of jacked up walk and the way I talked and, and all those things like that. I remember going into the audition and the director, actually, when I finished, he walked over and hugged me. He hugged me. That's, and he says, dude, you're perfect. I, I don't need to see anybody else. That's like the, the best audition ever, right? So right. that happened. So now, the first time I really saw, I mean, we talked about In Hell and stuff like that, but the remake of Hills of Eyes with Pluto and obviously the sequel, you played <laughs> uh, Papa Hades, but that was such a visceral character and that one scene in the trailer where you attack the family and stuff it's just like when you do a role like that how hard is it to get into that character like it but like that scene that i'm talking about where it's like i think it's the, the assault on the woman right mm-hmm. where it's like how do you play you play this evil character but how do you have to it's I me mean, it's gotta be a weird scene to kind of like get in character right um it is the first thing i always do to make sure that whoever I'm going to act across that they feel safe with me. That's right, really right. important. You know, when I'm going to be physical with somebody or whatever it is, toss them around. You know, I think once in my whole career that I've, I've actually grazed, like getting in fights, I've actually grazed somebody, just grazed them a little bit on their nose right. once. Uh, I remember when that was. <laughs> but, uh, but I've been punched many a time. Urkel full on, bam, just punched me right across the face, you know, in a, uh, you know, Urkel from Family Matters, right? So him, I fought him. I know that's crazy. Uh, but Von Damme beat the crap out of me. Uh, Lorenzo Lamas hit me a couple times. I mean, I've been punched by everybody. Chicks have punched me, you know, accidentally, of course, but, you know, everybody's been an accident, except for maybe Von Damme. He had a couple times. He might have put it on a little too thick for me, but... Uh, uh, that just to sell the fight? I mean, let's t- I mean for in hell, like, Again, your character is so imposing, like he's a bad guy, but you carry that that depth to him, where he's like you might actually sympathize why he acts this way. So that final scene with Van Damme, like the rehearsal for that, are you how how do they film that? Do you have an idea of how the fight's going to go? And when Van Damme kind of gets into a certain you, is that because it's a respect thing to you? Like, hey, this is a guy that can take this. Uh, I, you know, everybody, you know, some of these, some of these guys that you work with, you know, there are some people are known to, uh, they, I try to be safe, but they also are known to, I, I know exactly what you're saying. Yeah. Yep. You know, that, that lay it on all too much. Right. Right. Uh, I, I'm a saver Von Damme. He, I res, I respect his work ethic. He works really hard, uh, which is good. Um, and, uh, but for he and I, he invited me to his hotel and like in the lobby area, we found a quiet spot and we kind of rehearsed things, just he and I and some of his ideas. And then on the set, we actually, um, on the set, we rehearsed a lot, a lot over and over and over and over again to make it look as real and fluid as possible. Right. If you don't, people are going to get hurt. Inter- interesting uh, note about that, 
that movie. I played a different, I never played another character in that, that film and no one knows about. Were you so, the guy, the big guy is kind of the uh, in the mask. Yeah, that's me. So they had hired, so the AD on that movie, I forgot the guy's name. Uh, he's like six foot eight, huge yeah. guy, probably like 350 pound dude. <laughs> and so they just said, Hey, you could play this character. So they threw a mask on him at the opening scene of the movie and he started and broke his ankle. Couldn't wow. finish it. So they were freaking out. So we, how can we find someone big? And then someone goes, well, why don't we just build these shoes that have like four inch heels, you know, all the way across the platform and give them to Michael and he could play that role too. And then, um, you know who David Leach is? Yeah. David Leach, well-known, uh, Deadpool, uh, John Wick, you know, yep. producer, director. Well, he was a stunt coordinator on that, that film. And I got to know him pretty well. He threatened to quit. Uh, 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 Ringo Lamb was a director. He threatened to quit. Says you're putting Michael in a dangerous position if because there's only one Michael to finish playing Valya. So if you if you break him, right, you do it. And 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 I and I told Dave, I said, listen, I can do this. I, I'm I'm an athlete, right? I play football. I did all these other things. I jumped out planes for a living. You know, I could do all these things. It's okay. And and he he quit. But then he came back, but he quit like for the day. So I'm not be a part of this. And he walked away. Right. That's uh, kind of cool though. He looked out for you though. Yeah, no, I respect that quite a bit. And um, and so I put on these heels and I put the mask on and, and it was great. So I played that role uh, too. That was kind of interesting. So now that leads into you joined when you part of the show Charmed, which I've yeah. never watched. I'm familiar with the characters, obviously your roles because they're just so the makeup and the prosthetics are amazing, but you actually played more than one character on that show as well. So yeah, I played four. Weird, do they bring you on there for that same reason where you know, the cast, you know how it's filmed, you know, the, the story, just play this character and assume that the viewer has no, like, you, like, how do you play it off where the viewer you're anticipating the viewer not to realize this is the same guy that's playing this character? Yeah. So that's the, I mean, I, I mean, they're all different, though. So it helps yeah, agreed. So, so, so uh, your responsibility as an actor is even like you go from role to role, or you know, unless you're a movie star like Schwarzenegger, he basically plays the same role the whole way through, right? Just change the location yeah, because we want to see him just as Schwarzenegger or whoever, right? Doesn't matter. Um, but then you get people that are character actors, and I, I'm more of that type of actor, right? Um, and so that, for Charmed, I actually there's an episode. Um, it's called. All, Hall All Hallowell's Eve. It was a Halloween uh, episode. And I played this Grimlock called Janor, me and this other guy. And so I, that's the first role I got. I was a guest star role on it. I was playing this character. And I was, you know, when you're, when you're, you got roles, there's some roles that just fit you like a, a glove. Like you're just perfect for it. You can't do anything wrong, period. You can, I can sleep and I can do some of sleep. It just comes, it's great. Everyone loves what you're doing. And I think it's perfect. This is one of those roles like that. It was very stoic and just uh, very measured. And, and, and I like those kind of roles sometimes. And and so uh, throughout the filming of that, the producers come up, come up to me and say, you know, Michael, you're doing a really great job. And, you know, I get that. You get that all the time, but then you, you kind of blow it off because you don't want that stuff to go to your head. You just want to focus on, your, you know, your role and finishing strong. So uh, on the last day, I was in my trailer and I got a call from my agent my manager and she goes, Hey, they, they want you back. And I said, Oh, cool. As yeah, I said, good. I'll, I'll, I'll like this character. He goes, no, not that's character. She goes as a character named Belthazor They hired some other guy and he wasn't working out and they want to replace him with you. I'm like, great. So that's for, so this character Belthazor was the alter ego to uh, Cole, which is played by Julian McMahon, like the heartthrob, really good looking guy. Right. So yeah. I alter ego. It's a little bit like it was a flip, a flip of me and Carl Cefalio from the Fantastic Four. I played the human form, and he played the guy in the suit. It's kind of like the same thing. Now, now, and like Carl, who did with me, we worked together to make sure that his movements and my moods were were good, were were matching. The same thing on Charmed. I made sure that my movements matched his movements as towards what he would do. I made sure I did, and then I added my own flavor because I'm a different character. So. So, you know, so I, I did that and then that turned into a recurring character and I got really good at doing that. I said, well, how about you play this other character named Shax? So who yeah. was like this dude with long hair. And so how do I separate 
movements and the the way I act that compared to um, Balthazar. So Balthazar, his voice is very low and like, you know, no one crosses me. You know that kind of, that kind of voice, right? You know, very. You know, I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna rip your heart out and you know all that whole, I'm gonna eat it and yeah, take that off all that stuff. And and Shax is more uh, the end. You know, very like. I, I I draw the comparison to like uh, the uh, lead singer for the Doors. What's his uh, name? Uh, Jim Morrison. Yeah, Jim Morrison. Yeah, and you know, I kind of like this. <laughs> yeah. And so it's a mixture of that and kung and uh, tai chi. So a lot of movements with my hands and things like that because he's part of the Wind and Tornadoes. And then I uh, then I played. Um, I also played uh, the Source. So you can't see my face, but the voice and things like right. that is like through me. And then. Even like the Janor, I, I came back with a, another Grimlock. But every character I play, even like the Hills Have Eyes, you know, and how how that character is this big innocent guy. You could you could have taken uh, Pluto from the Hills of Eyes remake that I did. Yep. Put him in a nice family, like without all the environmental stuff and and who he grew up with. Taking oh, that same character 100%. and put him in like with like he would have grown up as a nice person. Yeah. But he's with these people that eat people. So he eats people too. Right. And he kills people. And there's no remorse to that. You know, you, you know, and a lot of people get, uh, I draw that analogy a lot of times to people that are, you know, that you know, like mass murderers or whatever. They're, they're kind of psychopaths, right? They're the ones that to them killing somebody is, that's just part of my job. And that's, that's the secret of playing bad guys is that you don't think that you're doing bad. You're just doing. You're doing your job. You're on a mission, right? You have something to complete, and and you have to believe that what you're doing is the right thing to do, and that's what makes your character feel real, and that's that's the important thing. Love that. Yeah, yeah. I'll have to. Uh, I assume when you do those conventions for Charm specific, the fan base is very uh, loyal and dedicated to that show. Oh, I agree completely. Did, um, the, I was going to say, I, I did a, I did a meet and greet and autograph signing in London. And uh, it flew me there. The line to meet me was down the street and around the corner. And I was like, wow, it's just crazy. I spent all day from 8 8 a.m. to like 5 or 6 signing autograph after autograph. It was just crazy. Now, before I let you go, the question I kind of came to my head is, when you're doing your other job, do people that don't know you or like know you, but when they recognize you, like, hey, are you that guy from this or that? Yes. So. Yeah, so right now I work. Uh, so I so I re- stepped away from acting. I say I stepped away. I didn't retire. I say I right, stepped right, right. Away from acting in 2015, and so and I've done a couple of movies since then. And I still get calls for movies, and if it fits right, that I'll go and do something. Uh, and I do a lot of writing. I have a tremendous amount of writing. So I've I've written a screenplay called uh, My Good Boy. Uh, I like movies that are like Shawshank Redemption and things like yes. that. Kind of let that kind of feel. And so that one just got option and it's supposed to go into production at the end of this year, beginning of next year. I want to be a producer on it as well. Awesome. Uh, I'm not going to act in it because it's, it's, uh, it's kind of semi-autobiographical to a certain extent. Um, and so it's, it's about basically, I'll tell you a bit, a bit about it. You know, you always hear these sports stories about great, you know, great, these athletes who overcome all these odds, become successful or win a championship like this. You never hear about the story about the guy who like me, who blew his knee out. He had everything right there sitting in the palm of his hands. His dream of playing for the Dallas Cowboys is right there. And an instant it was gone. No, nothing. No, no, thank you. No handshake, right. kick in the pain. It just, bye. Put on a plane, go back to Eastern, figure it out yourself. And you're done. Your whole career is done. You went from being an athlete all the time to being n- nothing. So how do you deal with that? And so for me, it led me down a, a dark path to a certain extent. And it was my way of, and how, and, and it's a story of how to get out, how I got out of that. And so, I mean, I, I, had, I had the point at one time where I had, I had people that wanted to basically hurt me. Right. Put that in a nice way. Yeah. Uh, and so, um, and it just, it was, you know, so it's that story. And so it's a little bit of different, bit of, bit of a unique story, but you know, I do a lot of writing, um, and then uh, I'm also the um, senior director of business development for this company, which is an international uh, company that's a manufacturer for uh, products from around the world. 
And uh, and so I travel around the world and I'll get people, I'll go in a, a meeting room with all these executives and I go, hey, we've, we've met before. Said, well, probably not, but I've met in your living room. Yeah. Go, what? <laughs> and then it's a great talking point that I talk about being an actor. I always use three, three names, Michael Bailey Smith, even as in, in what I do now. Instead of just like Mike Smith or Michael Smith, there's too many of those people. So I use Michael Bailey Smith and it kind of separates me and it gets people to kind of want to Google my name and then they come up and like, holy crap. And then is this you? And I always get that all the time. So I use it to my advantage for sure. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, I want to uh, thank you for this. And, uh, it was great to hear from you and talk about your life and uh, we'll have to do this again soon. And, uh, yes. So you you have a website, but you're also on Twitter. Is there any other other place people that would be listening could find you if they want to follow kind of what you do? Like, I, you know, know, Facebook as well. You okay. know, but I, I I'm not a big Twitter person, so uh, yeah, I have two boys, and I you know I've, I've been helping them. Uh, they're going to be playing college football, which is awesome. That's so right. I'm very very excited about that. Yeah, so that's why I would only use Twitter for that. So. Awesome. Well, yeah. I want to thank you, Michael Bailey Smith, for this. Uh, thank you, safe, and uh, we will talk soon. Yeah, thank you, sir. Appreciate it. Hey, listeners, I'm Christy. And I'm Melissa. And this is Buried Motives, where we dig deep into the details of some of the most gruesome dirtbag murderers. She said she enjoyed hurting things that can't fight back. And that is a disturbing view into the mind of a murderer in such a dirtbag. Yeah, that's not even strong enough words. This is totally a recipe for disaster and not to justify whatever is going to happen, but you can totally understand and see how this would be in the works. If you were only to look at what she did later on and not know any of that history, she would appear like off the wall crazy. Oh, 100% because we're not even close to getting to the end yet. But you can just see this pattern and all this kind of stuff developing in her, which is what we're here for. We're digging deep. Join us each Thursday as we unearth the dirt bags that live among us and the motives buried there. Hope you join us as we exhume the truth. Connie Teeson, the host of Broadcast Dialogue, the podcast. We focus on Canada and the challenges facing Canadian radio and TV, as well as highlighting those moving the industry forward from podcasting and streaming to new broadcast tech. Check us out at broadcastdialogue.com or your favorite podcast app.